Good evening. Welcome to the Pratt Library. Um, before we begin, how many people here saw Dr. Hayden on uh, WBAL doing her monthly book talk? Okay, and you were moved to come by that, or okay. Okay, my name is Ellie Lushinsky. I work in the Humanities Department, which is on the third floor. I cannot tell you how many people have walked into my department and said, I didn't even know there was a third floor. Well, let me tell you right now, there is a third floor. There are wonderful books there, uh, some of which are over the table, and you can borrow those. Um, we have the literary materials, so we have the books about Jane Austen, the books by Jane Austen are in our fiction department on the first floor. Uh, I'm here to introduce Juliet Wells, who is uh, now teaching at Goucher College up in Towson, and uh, Manhattanville's loss is definitely our gain here in Baltimore. Uh, after doing her undergraduate work at Johns Hopkins in Peabody, which makes her sort of a homegrown product, uh, she got a Ph.D. at Yale in literature, um, and for 2009-2010, she was the Austin Scholar-in-Residence at Goucher. Um, I personally have loved Austin, as I was uh, telling Dr. Wells, since I was about 12, because I had to keep up with what my sister was reading in high school. Uh, and I was so happy when Jane Austen returned to the mainstream in the 1990s with all the wonderful movies that came out. And I do want to say I have read the book that uh, Dr. Wills will be talking about, and it has the best end notes I've ever seen in my life. Read, read the end notes. They're, they're the best part of the book. Well, not maybe not the best, but... <laughs> But they're a wonderful part of the book, so uh, don't, don't miss out on them. And with no further ado, Dr. Wells. Thank you very much, Ellie. Can everyone hear me okay? If yes. I'm Excellent. Um, thank you so much, Ellie. And I'd like to thank Teresa for helping set up and Judy Cooper for the invitation to come speak tonight. Um, thank you all very much for coming out. My daughter reminds me it is the first day of spring whether it feels like it or not. So thank you for um, taking time out of your spring schedules. Um, as Ellie mentioned, I did my undergraduate work here in Baltimore and, and lived in Mount Vernon for five years. So this was my library. And it is, on a personal note, a huge pleasure to be back living in near Baltimore, very near Baltimore, again. And I wish that my younger self could have known that I would be able to come back and talk to you tonight. So this is a very exciting year for all of us who teach and work on Jane Austen and those of us who love to read Jane Austen because 2013 is the 200th anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. The exact anniversary date was at the end of January and there was a lot of press coverage nationally and internationally, some of it more serious than others. Um, Pride and Prejudice is certainly Austen's most popular, most widely read, um, most cleverly adapted novel. And the book that I wrote could not exist without Pride and Prejudice for several reasons. The first reason is certainly the 1995 miniseries version of Pride and Prejudice that starred Colin Firth, which has inspired more imaginative recreations of Pride and Prejudice um, than any other single adaptation that I know of. Um, and 
There's the sheer variety of versions of Pride and Prejudice that Austin lovers and fans have written in the last 18 or so years has given us all a lot to think about. So I want to ask you a couple of questions first. Um, how many of you, if you went to college, majored in English? Couple. Um, how many of you have read a Jane Austen novel? Aha, excellent. Um, seen a Jane Austen-related movie? Also very, almost, or at least part of one. Um, how many of you have read a book inspired by Jane Austen? For instance, the Jane Austen Book Club, one of the sequels. Okay, you are a very well-informed audience. Um, you may not need the first part of my talk, so I'll go quickly through it. I had in mind to give you a quick overview and recap of Jane Austen's life and influence, um, and then tell you some more about why I wrote this particular book, and to tell you in particular about two transformative experiences I had while I was researching and writing the book that really changed my approach and um, affected how I ended up writing and who I imagined I was writing for. And in that part of the talk, I get to focus on Alberta Burke, who is a Baltimore collector of Jane Austen, who gave her Austen materials to Goucher. And there's, there are lots of wonderful stories attached um, to Alberta and her collection. So my quick recap of Jane Austen's life. She was born in 1775. In December, I always like to think that she was born right before America was born. I think there's, there's something to say there. I'm not sure exactly what. She lived until 1817. She died at 41, which is, as we all know, terribly, terribly young. My undergraduate students think that 41 is, is an ancient age, um, but we all know that if she had lived longer, she would have written much more. And many of her family members um, had very long lives. She was one of the youngest in her family to die. Her publications came between 1811 and 8... Pardon? I hate to she was born in the village of Steventon in Hampshire in southern England, which is a very small village, and she lived there until she was 25. The house she was born in no longer stands, but the small church that her father was the clergyman of and that she worshipped in is, is still there and in, in very good condition, thanks to the people who live in the village, but also lovers of Jane Austen who make it a point to visit there. And if you have a chance ever to take a Jane Austen-related tour in England, Steventon is out of the way. You have to make an effort to get there. But the, the smallness of the church, I find, a really wonderful evocation of what the smallness of Austen's society was in her childhood and her girlhood years. Um, so her first novel, Sense and Sensibility, was published in 1811. And this is a story that a lot of contemporary writers find very inspirational because Jane Austen essentially self-published Sense and Sensibility. She and her family put up the money for, public, for publication because she did not yet have a track record as an author. Sense and Sensibility was successful, so after that point, um, Austen sold the copyright for her novels and was able to publish without putting up her own funds. She had written since childhood, and one of the wonderful things about Austen is that she copied out and saved, in very good condition, her childhood writings. So we have the stories, the sketches, the little plays, the unfinished burlesques that she wrote beginning at the age of 12. And they're really remarkable. You get a glimpse of the development of the author um, through those early works. She had very little formal schooling. She only went to school for a couple of years. Mostly she read. She read widely. Her father allowed her and her sister Cassandra to read all the books that he owned, and she also borrowed books from friends and acquaintances. 
And her family was a lively literary family. Her brothers were college educated. Um, she was part of a literary circle, though not part of the London literary world. Um, as I mentioned, her father was a clergyman. A couple of her brothers were in the Navy. Another br a brother was also a clergyman. So she had contact with professional worlds and contact, close contact with family members who traveled much more widely than she did. So although her life was spent primarily in the southern part of England, in Steventon, in the city of Bath for several years, ultimately in the village of Chawton, which is also in Hampshire, not too far from Steventon. She's buried in Winchester, the cathedral city. She had visited London. Um, but her, her frame of reference was larger than her own travels, thanks to her family members. She did not marry. She had the opportunity to marry. We know at least once she accepted a marriage proposal and turned it down the next day. There are family stories and rumors of other love affairs, but we don't know of any for sure. Um, her closest relationship throughout her life was with her elder sister, Cassandra, whom we know read Austin's writing in progress and was a great source of emotional support for her um, throughout both their lives. During her own lifetime, Austin was not a blockbuster author by any means. There were best-selling women authors of the day, and Austin was not one of them. Her books were highly praised in the reviews that appeared during her lifetime, um, but her readership was relatively modest. Interest in her really took off in the 1870s, long after her death, when her nieces and nephews got together to remember stories about her, and one of the nephews put the stories together with some of Austen's letters in a book called a memoir, which is really a biography, we would call it. And in the 1870s, Victorian readers were very curious about the stories of authors' lives, and that, the publication of that memoir really reignited interest in Austen's writings. Her novels had been read in earlier decades and had been praised by, among others, George Henry Lewis, the partner of the novelist George Eliot, but she didn't have significant fame in the mid-19th century, um, as she certainly does now. If you're interested in tracking Jane Austen's popularity or thinking about how her popularity today relates to earlier times, the book I'd recommend is called Jane's Fame by the English author Claire Harmon, and it's a very readable account of Austen's publication in her own time and how the fortunes of her popularity and fame waxed and waned um, over the decades and the centuries. So my own book has its origins um, in part in my teaching and in part in my own experience. My own experience part is that when I lived in Mount Vernon as an undergraduate in the mid-90s, it was just that time that Ellie was mentioning when all of the screen adaptations of, of Austen's writings were coming out. So I didn't actually see the Pride and Prejudice... I didn't actually see the Pride and Prejudice miniseries because I didn't have cable. But I do remember going to the Charles Theater when it was only one screen and seeing Persuasion and seeing Clueless. And the, the film that really had an influence on me and that I thought about very much while I was writing this book was Sense and Sensibility, the film that, for which Emma Thompson wrote the screenplay and in which she starred. And I remember walking from Mount Vernon to the $2 cinema that was on Ford Avenue at the time, <laughs> seeing Sense and Sensibility again, and then walking home. So I... I had read Austen's novels by that point. I was certainly studying them at Hopkins, but I was also an Austen fan. I was very, very fond of that film for reasons that I don't think I could have expressed at the time. So it was very important to me as I was working on this project not to talk down to fans of Austen and not to take a kind of disdainful academic 
um, supercilious approach to them because I had, I had been a fan myself, and I still am in some ways. In terms of my teaching, before I came to Goucher, I was teaching at Manhattanville College outside of New York City. And when I arrived there in 2003, I developed a course called Jane Austen and Popular Culture because I figured undergraduates at that point were young enough to remember those 1990s Austen films. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to offer the course more than once. I wasn't sure if there would continue to be interest in Austen. And of course, in 2005, there was a feature film of Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley, so I put that on the course. And then in 2007, there was the biopic of Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway, so I put that on the course. And then there were the zombies. So the course has, the course has continued. Zombies. Um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, from 2009, which I had to write about in my book even though I had no idea the zombies were coming. And I initially had no idea what to do with them. Um, As I was teaching this course, I began researching and writing about adaptations of Austen, beginning with the films, moving on to fiction. Um, And a turning point in my project was in 2007 when I went to England to a study day, a conference on Austen's influence on 20th century writers. I brought with me a paper that I had written about American popular fiction that depicted Jane Austen as a character. So there were mysteries by Stephanie Barron in which Jane Austen is the sleuth. And there were romance novels in which Jane Austen has a romance with a Virginia gentleman named Fitzwilliam Darcy. Ah, and she's inspired by that. And other books like that. And what I discovered when I gave a paper on this popular fiction to the conference in England was that I was really alone in my sense that this material was inherently interesting. As I had gone in very naively and thought, if you're interested in Austen's writings, then surely you would be interested in these strange manifestations of Austen in popular culture and all these ways that ordinary readers and writers are re-envisioning her for popular audiences. And I discovered, in fact, that my fellow academics were not particularly interested at all um, and would say very disparaging things about the existence of these wholly, wholly non-academic works. So I realized that if I were to write in part for an audience of academic readers, scholarly readers, that I would have to frame my argument in such a way that I could make a case that we scholars would have, that it's worth our time to get to know this material and to take it seriously. Um, I wanted to say a little bit about the personal aspect of my writing of the project as well. Um, I've often found when I listen to people talk about their books, I'm always curious, well, how did that fit into your life? Um, For me, when I first planned the book, my daughter was two and my son had been just born and they're now seven and five, happily. And I realized that at that point in my life, there was no way that I was going to take on a book project that involved going and doing library research far from home for six months on a fancy fellowship. I needed a project that I could do at home with minimal travel and in which I could do research of a sort as part of my family life. And so I discovered that books inspired by Jane Austen are very easy to read while you're nursing and chasing after toddlers. Um, Because you don't have to necessarily pay attention to every word the way you do when you're reading real Jane Austen. Um, There was also uh, an important part of the project for me. When I started it, I had tenure at Manhattanville College, which meant I didn't need to worry about writing about popular sources or writing about them in an atypical way because I had job security and, and protection. So the first of the transformative experiences that I had while I was working on the book um, 
involved a month that I spent at Jane Austen's house. And this is in the village of Chawton in Hampshire. It's a tourist site. It's a lovely place to visit. I recommend it highly. Um, And this opportunity was made possible by the Jane Austen Society of North America, which is a terrific organization that the two of us can tell you more about if you're interested. The Jane Austen Society of North America was founded in 1979, and it brings together lovers of Jane Austen from all walks of life. And one of their wonderful programs is a summer fellowship to send a member of the society to Chawton, England, to do some sort of research project related to Jane Austen. So people have worked on gardens, and people have worked on music. And my project that I came up with was on the subject of literary tourism. And literary tourism is just when you travel someplace because you're interested in an author. And we all, I mean, I imagine many of us have done this. You know, if you went to the Poe House, or if you go to the Mencken House, or any place you go because it has a, a literary connection. If you go to Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey, there are academic studies of literary tourism. Uh, most of them are not by literary scholars. They tend to be by tourism studies type people or sociologists. And I found that the academic studies of literary tourism really missed what I thought the point was of going someplace because an author had lived there, an author had written there. So I thought, I'll go to Jane Austen's house for a month in the summer, and I will interview and survey visitors to the house, and I will ask them very simple questions about why they've come and what the experience means to them and what they think about Jane Austen. And this turned out to be a terrific experience. I was hoping, and it turned out to be true, that I could talk to people of all different nationalities, because people come from all over to this Jane Austen house, people of all different ages. I had wonderful conversations with um, people who had read Jane Austen many, many decades ago. Um, And these are the kinds of people, I think, who would never otherwise go on record to anybody about their interest in Jane Austen. You know, an 80-year-old man who remembers reading Northanger Abbey in his boys' school before World War II is not blogging about that. He told me about it because I asked him, and I got to hear that wonderful story. Um, And I got to talk to both men and women. And this was important to me because there's a perception in America in particular that Jane Austen is for women, Jane Austen is for chicks. And we all know, especially in the Jane Austen Society, but I know in my teaching, I know in my, with my f- friends, that plenty of men appreciate Jane Austen's writings as well. And I got to talk to several at Jane Austen's house. One of them was an admiral in the Navy who had accompanied his wife and didn't think he would find anything to interest him at Jane Austen's house. But once he discovered that one of her brothers was high up in the Navy, he changed his tune and decided he would research her brothers. He was very excited. Um, To continue with the personal piece of the research, my family came along with me for that month in England. My daughter was three, my son was one, my husband was extremely helpful. Um, And my three-year-old daughter said one of the loveliest things about literary tourism that I've ever heard. Um, She went with me to Jane Austen's house And what she said that evening was that she was surprised that Jane Austen wasn't there. Because when you visit someone's house, you expect to meet that person. And it seemed to me that was more profound than than she realized, because fundamentally, an author's house does center on someone who's not there. Of course, not there anymore. Um, One of the results of that experience interviewing literary tourists at Jane Austen's house was that I 
formed the intention to write a book that, in addition to speaking to a scholarly audience, would also be readable and would appeal to general readers, because it seemed just utterly wrong to me to interview these lovely people and talk to them about Jane Austen and then go off and read a book that would be off-putting to them and that they would not understand or appreciate or want to read. So I really tried to bridge the gap or split the difference in this book. And if you read it, let me know what you think. I've had very good feedback so far from people who are not academics. Um, and I would give you one particular piece of advice, which is to skim and skip as much as you like. Ellie spoke up for the footnotes, the endnotes, which is super. A lot of the first chapter in particular is there to set the academic frame so that the scholars will take the work seriously and understand how it relates to other scholarship. So general readers should feel extremely free to buzz through that material if it's not interesting to you and get on to the later chapters where the, where the, um, the substance of the work is. Um, the second transformative experience I had while I was working on the book was at Goucher. And Ellie mentioned that I had the opportunity to be scholar-in-residence in the Goucher collections a couple of years ago. This is um, one of the programs that we have related to our Jane Austen collection. Every two years, an Austen scholar from somewhere around the world is invited to spend a week doing research in the collection, presenting a public lecture, um, interacting with classes and faculty as appropriate. And our next scholar will be visiting next year, and we don't know yet who that is or which week um, the person will be coming, but if you keep an eye on Goucher's event calendar, the, the lectures are, are lovely and well-attended, always very interesting. Last year's lecture was about translations of Austin, which are an important part of our collection and, and a unique part as well. Um, so the Burke Collection, named after Alberta Burke, the Burke Collection of Austin is the largest, we say, in North America, um, and what's distinctive about it is not its size, but its range and its variety. Um, Alberta Burke, our collector, I'll tell you more about her life and her collecting in a moment. Um, she was interested in anything that had to do with Jane Austen. So she collected first editions and items of obvious value, first and early editions. She also collected material about Austen's life and times. She was very interested in dance and culture and costume and customs, so we have lots of contextual material in those areas. And then what made Alberta really unusual is that she was very interested in popular manifestations of Austin. So she kept track of movies and radio versions and mentions of Austin in the newspaper and all kinds of what we would call ephemera um, that, as far as we know, no one else was keeping track of in the same way. She even kept her tea towels from her visits to England. I think there's a napkin in the collection somewhere. I mean, it really runs the gamut from the obviously valuable to the interested, interesting to the passionate Jane Austen fan. And then a, another deeply important part of the collection is Alberta Burke's correspondence. We have the letters that she wrote to the dealers who were helping her buy materials at auction. We have her correspondence with Austin scholars and Austin lovers around the world. So all of that material gives us a wonderful portrait of a woman who centered her life in many ways on her dedication and devotion to Jane Austen. So let me tell you now a little bit more about Alberta Burke. She is a wonderful Baltimore story, and she's not nearly as well-known as I think she should be. She was born in 1907 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 
um, to one of the few Jewish families living in that city then. Um, her family was wealthy, not ridiculously wealthy, but wealthy. Her grandfather had done well um, in business. And she came to Goucher to study in 1924, when Goucher was still a women's college and still located downtown, not on the Towson campus yet. Um, while she was at Goucher, she met Henry Burke, the brother of one of her classmates, and they married two years after she graduated. She graduated in 1928, and they married in 1930. And by that time, Alberta had gone back home and completed a master's in English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Shortly after Alberta married Henry Burke, the two of them began collecting Austin. The main interest was Alberta's, but Henry was intensely involved as well. The couple did not have children, and Henry, um, whose parents were Eastern European immigrants who owned a store in Baltimore, Henry had earned a PhD at Hopkins and truly had made himself. Um, they spent their time and their money on their interests, which were Austin, which were Yiddish theater. Um, they collected in several areas. They attended ballets. They, they traveled internationally. Um, the book that Alberta Burke called her Bible... Um, was a bibliography of Austin editions published in 1929 by an Englishman named Jeffrey Keynes, who's the brother of John Maynard Keynes. Jeffrey Keynes was a surgeon. He was an amateur lover of literature. He published on William Blake as well as Austin. And this book from 1929, his bibliography, was important because it was the first reference source that gave information about all the different editions of Austin's novels, including lots of specifics and particulars so that you could identify if you saw a book in a catalog or went to a bookshop and saw an early edition of Austin, you could cross-reference it with this bibliography and discover just what exactly it was you were looking at. Alberta studied this bibliography. She seems almost to have committed it to memory. And she was self-taught as a bibliographer and as a cataloger. Um, as Alberta acquired more Austin editions and Austin materials, she kept her own catalog entries for all of them meticulously um, and with no errors at all. This was really her life's work. She did not work outside the home, and as I said, she didn't have children. She kind of invented for herself this mission of collecting Austin and curating and cataloging her collection. Most of her materials, her valuable materials, she collected in the 1930s and 1940s, which were exceptionally good times, which were an exceptionally good time to collect without having to spend a huge amount of money. As World War II loomed, as World War II took place, a lot of um, manuscripts and early editions came on the market. Um, English families needed money. Um, or hoped that their treasures could find a safe home in America before wartime. So Alberta Burke made savvy purchases in those years. She was especially interested in materials that she thought gave her a personal connection to Austin. So she collected first editions so that she could read them, not just put them on the shelf and admire them, but read them and know that she was reading the same pages that Austin's first readers had read. And Alberta collected manuscript letters and manuscript notes of Austin's because those were in Austin's handwriting and, of course, had been touched by her. And so there was almost a kind of spiritual sense Alberta conveys in her letters of feeling close to this beloved author um, through these manuscript materials. 
What's really special about Alberta's collection for Goucher is that she decided very early on that she wanted Goucher to have the materials, her alma mater to have the materials upon her death. She died in 1975, but she first sounded out Goucher about her collection in the mid-1930s, about seven years after she graduated. And I tell this to my undergraduates. I say, imagine, seven years after you've graduated, you're already forming an important collection and you want to give it to Goucher. And they all they look at me with, with open mouths. And hard, hard to imagine. Um, she felt it was, it was very important that this material that she had treasured and enjoyed during her lifetime be available to students and readers after her death. And we are very, very fortunate to have the materials. I should say... The one section of her collection that Goucher does not have is the manuscripts, because in 1975, Goucher was not equipped to take proper care of manuscripts. And so those Alberta decided to give to the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York, which already had a very large collection of Austin letters, which Morgan had collected. So you can visit those materials at the Morgan Library and see that they are the gift of Alberta Burke. And and we wish, of course, they could be reunited with her collection at Goucher, but that ship has sailed. One important event in Alberta's life that she commemorated um, in her collection was the release in 1940 of the black and white feature film of Pride and Prejudice starring Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson. This was a huge event in American popular culture and the 1940s featured many, many versions of Pride and Prejudice, stage versions, radio versions, all kinds of adaptations in the wake of that film version. And the influence of the film version is visible, too, in the cover art for popular versions, popular editions of Pride and Prejudice that were published for many decades. And let me mention, we at Goucher have an exhibit on right now until July. This is a bookmark for it. I have more over there um, called Pride and Prejudice, a 200-year affair. And you can come and see first editions, illustrated editions, and then lots of translations and new versions of Pride and Prejudice from Alberta's collection. And some of the cover art from the international translations is is really delightful. There are Italian translations from the 60s that show Elizabeth Bennet as if she were, you know, kind of modern Italian woman, and they're they're really um, appealing. One way that Alberta kept track of the references to Austin that she felt were so important was in scrapbooks. We have 10 volumes of composition notebooks in which Alberta pasted in um, newspaper stories, advertisements, all these little bits and pieces, and she headed them with catalog information, and she often annotated them along the side. And she's very caustic in her annotations, very funny. Whether she thought an adaptation was good or bad, usually she thought it was bad. Um, and these scrapbooks are these kind of bulging compendia. I mean, they're wonderful research sources because you can't find all of this material, even with the database searches that we have now. She has crosswords in which, you know, a Jane Austen novel was a clue. She has um, things that she got in airplanes. She had friends around the world sending her Austen-related things from their travels. So it's, it's an amazing resource. Um, and it's also a bit overwhelming, Uh, My students look at the scrapbooks and they say, she was obsessed. And they say, you know, passionate, obsessed, where do you you draw the line? She she cared very, very deeply um, about Austin. One of my favorite stories about Alberta's collection, because I was an undergraduate at Hopkins, is that Alberta and her husband lived on University Parkway in the Broadview apartment buildings. And they bought two apartments when that building was new, 
and the story goes, one for themselves, one for their books. And she could look, you know, literally look across University Parkway and see Gilman Hall, where the English department was, and the English department at Hopkins had no idea of what she possessed, and she never told them. And after her death, the Baltimore Sun publicized her collection and the, the author of the article said, you know, how amazing that steps away from Hopkins was this exceptional Austin collection. Alberta was very, very private about her collection. She had no desire to be publicly or widely known for it. Her husband, after her death, described her as a very, very private person. Um, she was retiring. She was very helpful to other Austin lovers and some Austin scholars who sought out her help and her counsel. She would um, exchange information with them. She let some of them come and consult her books. But by no means was she interested in, in being publicly known um, or certainly sharing anything with those Johns Hopkins sc- scholars. Um, the other story about Alberta that is the most widely known involves a lock of Jane Austen's hair. Now, um, again, my students always, whenever I say locks of hair, my students start to blanch. And I remind them that it was a popular memorial gift in, in earlier centuries. You know, as to remember someone, you might, you would keep a lock of hair and sometimes just as is, or you would braid it and make jewelry out of it. Alberta bought at auction a lock of Jane Austen's hair. And when Alberta attended a meeting of the Jane Austen Society, the original English Jane Austen Society, in 1949, Um, she listened to one of the higher-ups in that society complain that so many important Austin relics were leaving England. And in particular, the speaker mentioned that a lock of Jane Austen's hair had been bought by an American. And this, as far as we know, is the only time Alberta ever stood up in public and talked about her collection. As her husband told the story later, she muttered under her breath, I will give them the damned hair. And she stood up, and said, I am the American who bought Jane Austen's hair, and I will make a gift of it to Jane Austen's house. And everyone was was very pleased and excited. So if you visit Jane Austen's house in Chawton, the lock of hair is on exhibit, and it's it's, um, denoted as the gift of of Alberta Burke. Um, As I mentioned, Alberta left her collection as a legacy to Goucher and the manuscripts to the Morgan. She stipulated that the collection be available at all times. This is not strictly true. Our special collections library is not open 24-7 the way our regular library is. But we do have these materials available for undergraduate classes and for the public. So any of you who who are interested in Austin or if you know anyone who's interested in Austin, Give us a, an email or a call at Goucher, and we'll set up a time for you to look at these materials um, if you want to go in more depth than the Pride and Prejudice exhibit. Alberta felt very strongly that Americans have access to this material. She endured quite a lot of encouragement, not to say pressure, from English people to donate her collection to England so that all of those editions and materials could be back in the motherland. And she kept her materials here in America um, at Goucher and the Morgan. Um, Some of the gems of the collection, which you'll see in the Pride and Prejudice exhibit, as I've mentioned, are illustrated editions, translations. Um, Not that Alberta Burke personally read Chinese or Dutch or Finnish, but she was curious to see which Austin novels had been translated into these various languages and to see, as I mentioned, the, the cover art. 
So Alberta's changed my project in several ways. I realized that she was such a fascinating person. I wanted to write a whole chapter about her. Nothing really has been written about her or her collection aside from little mentions here and there. And I really wanted to introduce readers to her and give a sense of who she was and why she had done this and why this was important to her. And thinking about her as a reader, someone who related to Austin, not in a scholarly way, not in an academic way, but because of passion, because of love, um, made me want to center my whole project on readers' imagined versions um, of Austin. And I mentioned before there's little in literary scholarship about literary tourism. There turns out to be little in literary scholarship about reading for pleasure. We academics don't tend to write about that. Um, Sociologists have studied book clubs, have studied reading self-help books, um, and I make use of those sources in my book. But literary scholars haven't really known what to do about reading for pleasure. Um, And I think Jane Austen's popularity gives those of us who teach a wonderful opportunity to step out of our academic worlds and to talk to real readers of all ages and think about what this common ground is, these works that we care about so much. Um, So I'm sometimes asked, what's happening to the Jane Austen phenomenon now? Is it over? Um, And the answer is no, but we're not sure where it's going to go. Um, The Pride and Prejudice and Zombies book from 2009 really came out of nowhere. And in the wake of that, we have vampire versions of Austen and all kinds of stuff. So maybe someone's got a new radical idea like that. Um, We know there are more film versions, more novel updates in the works. Um, Some of what Ellie pulled, um, the, the book All Roads Lead to Austen over there, I would especially recommend. This was published last fall, and it's, it's a lovely travel memoir of a California professor who spends her sabbatical in Latin America reading Jane Austen's novels in different countries um, in book groups. It's, it's really interesting. It has a, a lot to say about Austen's interest around the globe. What's next for us at Goucher, now that I'm there and happily teaching there, um, I'd like to mention we have a brand new minor, in case you know any college students or people who are considering college, we have a brand new minor in book studies, which brings together courses in readers and reading and the art of the book, the history of the book as an object, and I'm going to be um, offering a new course next fall called Jane Austen and Her Readers, which will really get students into the Burke collection and thinking about how readers have read Austen and responded to her. Um, And then... An important thing that I think Goucher is continuing to do more and more is to connect with the community. Our exhibit is part of that. Events like this one where I come and talk to you um, are part of that effort as well. For myself, now that I'm at Goucher, I want to do more work on Alberta. I want to think more about what collecting meant to her and how, as a collector of literature, as a woman in Baltimore, as a Jewish woman, what she has in common with other collectors in Baltimore and other literary collectors um, across America. So I think of the Cone Sisters and their wonderful collections of art that we have in the BMA. And I I wonder what common ground Alberta had um, with the Cone Sisters. I think of the major literary collections and libraries that we have in Baltimore, the George Peabody Library, um, Evergreen House's library, and how those collections compare to what Alberta was doing. And then I think of the the major high-profile American literary collectors who tend to be men, um, Folger, Huntington, um, 
you know, how did their impulses to collect, what did collecting mean to them um, in relation to what it meant for Alberta? Um, I also want to dig more deeply into Alberta's correspondence. I spent time with it um, when I was a scholar, the visiting scholar at Goucher, and I use it in one of the chapters in my book, but there's much more there to give us insight into what her collecting meant to her and what she thought about um, Jane Austen. And then I'm, I'm curious more broadly about how American readers have responded to Austen um, since her earliest publications over here. As I was writing my book, it was important to me to keep an international focus, but as I was going and as I put the Alberta chapter in there in particular, I found myself writing more and more about Americans. And so I really I want to go um, into more depth with that in a new project. So it's, it's very special to me to address an audience like you here at the Pratt tonight because you are the everyday readers. You are, I don't know you personally, um, but a, a public library audience is the non-academic reading for pleasure, reading for personal reasons, personal enrichment um, kind of audience um, about whom I write in the book and for whom I write in the book. And in one sense, my project began in a public library because my first contact with the popular fiction that depicted Austin as a heroine came when I was browsing the shelves at the White Plains Library um, in New York where I was living. I said, oh my gosh, look, there's not just one book that has Jane Austen as a heroine. There are, there are several. And no academic library, except for Goucher's, would collect material like that. So you really to look for popular materials, and the public library is, is the place to go. So I'm very happy to answer any questions that you have about the book or Jane Austen or Goucher's collections or anything. Yeah. Well, I have two questions and a comment. Okay. The first, uh, the comment is she died at 21, right? Right. Okay, and I was going to say that a lot of things, uh, you know, either composers or authors in those days were incredibly talented and I imagine what they would go forward on the 40. And uh, Mozart was 35 and Schubert was 20, 28, 28. I mean, 31. So, um, but that's a comment. So, the question is one of the questions is um, if you were going to um, put in order uh, your top five of her novels, uh, oh gosh, and movies also, what would you put? Starting from the fifth. <laughs> okay. So, oh, let, let me say one thing that's, that's important that I always want to say. In the book, I go out of my way not to put value judgments on the popular material. And I, I've been in a lot of scholarly gatherings where people say, oh, all of, this, all of these Pride and Prejudice sequels are dreck, except this one I especially happen to like. So I really wanted to avoid that. So if I think something has an interesting story to tell about how people are thinking about Austin, I treat it in the book. If I don't think, if I don't think a particular book adds much, I treat it very quickly or I don't treat it at all but I, I don't play favorites and I don't make fun of, of things that people have written. So I have to be unofficial in telling you which movies that I like the best, but I will tell you. Um, I have to duck the question, though, on favorite Austen novels because I truly like them all, and I teach them all um, in as many different courses as I can squeeze them into. And so whichever one I'm teaching at the moment, I'm appreciating again. So right now I'm teaching Persuasion in one course and Pride and Prejudice in another course. So those I'm appreciating. Um, she published six complete novels, and then she left a couple of unfinished um, novels and, and other manuscripts. So yeah, she published four novels during her lifetime and then two shortly after her death that her brother helped publish. So 
movies. Well, I mentioned that I that the Sense and Sensibility film by Emma with Emma Thompson's screenplay really mattered to me um, as a student, and it still does. I appreciate that one very much. Yes, yes, early, early Kate Winslet role, directed by Ang Lee. So that I would definitely recommend. Um, the 1995 version of Persuasion that had Karen Hines as Captain Wentworth is one of everybody's favorite adaptations. Clueless, which is Amy Heckerling's update of Emma to Beverly Hills High School, is a really smart, really funny adaptation. It's not faithful, you know, at all, but it has a lot of spirit to it. Um, and I find that my undergraduate students, you know, who are now were toddlers when Clueless came out, they tend to know it. They know the script verbatim, so many of them have, most of them, have not read Emma, the novel that Clueless was based on. Um, but then, when they come to Emma, they discover that Clueless is actually very good preparation. That's a great movie. Um, I, I I have real problems with the Emma ones. I want to put all three of them together. I want to take this element from this Emma and this element from that Emma and just kind of put them in the blender. But a, a lesser known film that I would really recommend strongly um, is a biographical film with what, what I think is a really unfortunate title. The title is Miss Austin Regrets. Oh, it sounds so dreary. But it's, it's actually a very smart film about Austin in the last couple of years of her life. A lot of the screenplay is based on her letters. So it really sounds like her. And the actress who portrays her in that film, um, Olivia Williams, is the age that Austin was. And she really conveys a lot of intelligence and wit and, and loveliness in that role. So I would, I would recommend that film um, for anyone who's curious about Austin's authorship um, and her relationship with her sister in particular. And the sec- the second question I have. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is... Um Depends who you ask. Um, I mean, yes and no. One of the the big ongoing scholarly debates um, in Austin studies is: is Austin conservative or progressive? You know, or is she? What kind of mixture is she? She doesn't upend the class system. She, you know, she, in one sense, she doesn't really criticize the idea of of social rank. But in Persuasion, which is the last novel that she wrote, um, she shows the opening of a new world in which a Navy man who has made his own money and who is morally upright and a good person is the equal of, and in some ways even the superior to, um, someone with a title and an estate, but who doesn't have the real true gentlemanliness that ought to go along with, with that status. So that's that's one of the things that makes me think if she had lived longer, you know, would she have developed those ideas more and would we have seen a more progressive um, depiction from her even yet? Maybe so. Yeah. I always want to ask, um, you said she had no, um, she never married or anything. Right. But this, did her brother, did any of her brothers marry and have um, descendants by any chance? Yes, absolutely. So... One of her brothers um, had health problems, was deaf, and we're not quite sure what else. So he didn't marry. But her other brothers did marry, and she had many nieces and nephews. And the world is full today, literally bursting with people who can trace descent 
from one of the, the nieces and nephews, but there are no direct descendants because she didn't have children herself. And those nieces and nephews were the ones I mentioned who put their memories and their stories about Aunt Jane together for that first biography in the 1870s. So they're an important source of um, first-hand recollection of her, although, of course, they were little children at the time. Yeah, sure. I was wondering about was so she started out in Steventon, a village in Hampshire. Um, and if you, if you imagine that my hand is England, which is not like England at all, but London is over here, and Hampshire is a rural county. It's not very far from London in terms of miles, but it's, it really feels like you're out in the country. Um, and of course, travel was not as easy then as, as now. Um, so from Steventon, she moved to the city of Bath, a little further to the west. She lived in Southampton on the southern coast um, for a while. She visited London. Um, she traveled around, you know, essentially the bottom part of England. And then she ended up in Chawton, another village in Hampshire, and was buried in Winchester, lived her last weeks and was buried in Winchester, um, all in that county. Margaret. What does she die of? What does she die of? Um, the guess is Hodgkin's disease, but it's a guess. I mean, we have, we, her sister and others kept track of her symptoms, but I mean, you know, the medical diagnoses now don't, don't necessarily match up with medical diagnoses then. So there are, there have been other guesses, but I think Hodgkin's disease is the, the generally accepted guess as to, to what she died of. Margaret? Did they keep being published over the years? Yes. Um, were her bu- books published in the States, and did they keep being published over the years? Yes. Um, Pride and Prejudice is a great example, because when it was first published in America, it was published as Elizabeth Bennett or Pride and Prejudice. So um, in, in those years, American publications weren't necessarily, usually were done without the permission of the original publisher. These were earlier days of copyright and piracy. And so American publishers felt free to retitle books. And early translators, too, um, made very free with their adaptations. The first French translator of Sense and Sensibility totally changed the ending and had Willoughby and Marianne get back together. And I mean, so if you were reading one of these early versions in France, I mean, you would have had no idea how it related to the, the original book. What year was the first book? Good question. I'm pretty sure that Emma was the first book to to be published in America. And we at Goucher have one of the first American editions of Emma, of which, if I remember correctly, only three copies are known to exist. So it's it's one of our our great rarities and treasures. Um, But if you come to our exhibit, you can see... Um, the American editions and the illustrated editions. And you can also browse in the Goucher Library catalog, um, which is open access if you're curious of, about tracing them. But it's good. I will, I will certainly have to get better up on my American edition dates if I go forward with an Austin and America project. I don't have them on my fingertips just now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am delighted that somebody likes the spin-offs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been done with a lot of the spinoffs, especially the one where the nurses have a party for the children of everybody from every book. Yeah. Um, and what? Yes, that's it. What was it well, why do you the Darcy's Give a Ball yeah. by Elizabeth Newark, is that right? Yeah. Mm. Thank you. I just
It is. Well, I have to say, I'm really interested that people choose to write so many of the spinoffs. I find each of them fascinating that it exists. That doesn't necessarily mean that I enjoy reading it, but I'm, I'm really interested that all these different people spent the time to create their own version of Austin's world and that it meant so much to them to do it. And that it means, and that so many people are involved in these projects, everyone from P.D. James, you know, the eminent English mystery writer who wrote Death Comes to Pemberley, that, yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, you know, all the way down to first-time authors who are writing what we would call fan fiction, you know, who are writing their versions of Darcy and Elizabeth, and some of them get published by, by regular publishing houses, and many of them self-publish. And, I mean, there's just an enormous amount of material out there that testifies to people's personal interest in Austin. Sometimes people say they're writing their books as a tribute to Austin. And you really, you know, I mean, you kind of have to say, well, hands off. If that's your tribute, that's your tribute. You know, but it, it interests me. In many cases, the, the writers of these Austin-inspired books don't really even seem to know of the work that each other is doing. That's not what they care about. I mean, there are exceptions. There are, there's a group of Austin authors who blog together and help each other promote their books online. Um, you know, there are commercial efforts like that. But many people who are writing sequels are doing it for really personal individual reasons and not because they think the world needs another Pride and Prejudice sequel, which arguably, you know, does it? I don't know. Who can read them all? There are too many. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it, studies of fan fiction began with television and film fan fiction and only very belatedly got around to these literary works, canonical literary works. I mean, read Jane Austen for college credit or write your own fan fiction related to Jane Austen. Harry Potter fan fiction, of course, is the, the really big um, um, production. So many people involved with that. Yeah. Um, one that I'm very familiar with um, is Romeo and Juliet. I mean, people have been trying to recreate yes. forever. But yes. the quantity of Jane Austen um, wannabes or <laughs> spin-offs, whatever you want to call yeah. them, uh, is, it, is it greater than like some of the classical... That's a great question. I'm not sure how you would measure. So Shakespeare is definitely the father of all adaptations. And in the first chapter, which I recommend that you skip if you're not an academic, I bring in some work from Shakespeare in popular culture. You know, as in, hello, Jane Austen scholars. We're not the first ones who have had to confront popular work on our author. The Shakespeare scholars have been dealing with this for many decades. Let's listen to what they have to say. Um, and adaptations of Shakespeare have been much more audacious than adaptations of Austen. We do have some X-rated versions of Austen coming very recently, but there's been Shakespeare-related porn you know, for a long time, believe it or not. Um, what's distinctive about Austen is that this burst of adaptations and versions of her work in, since approximately 1995... So the first sequel to Austen's novels written by an Austen-loving reader was Old Friends and New Fancies by Sybil Brenton from 1913. 
and then Pemberley Shades by D.A. Benavia Hunt from 1949. And then there are, you know, a few instances. Joan Aiken has written Austin-inspired books in the 80s. There are a few books in the 90s before the film versions. Emma Tennant wrote a few. And then the the popularity of the Pride and Prejudice miniseries combined with all of that mid-90s attention to Austin really ignited so many efforts to write and efforts to publish. And some of them, you know, frankly, are more commercial than others. And certainly Austin is a brand and Austin has sold books. I'm not sure the extent to which she continues to sell books, but certainly publishing houses, wondering who is going to buy books now, you know, are will continue to publish the kinds of things that have recently been successful. So I don't think anyone can compare to Austin's burst of popularity in recent decades. Although, you know, over, over her 200 years, probably she's still behind Shakespeare. And Dickens is another big one, you know, a canonical writer who's much beloved, uh, many versions of which have been created. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes, great example. Yeah, yeah. Fan fiction and author societies with fantasy play and but anyway what's different about Austen is that she's she's central to literature I mean she's English novelist number one according to some folks and Conan Doyle is important for the history of detective fiction but you're not going to make the case that he's a literary author you know on the standing of Shakespeare or Austen yeah a couple comments. One, I think with some of the fan fiction, a lot of your take on whether you like it or not depends on how the author took the characters you like and create and made them move forward. Yeah. If you don't like what they do with them, like yeah. I did not like the P.D. James because she, she yeah. did some things with the characters that I just didn't like. And yeah. that was not them. So I didn't like that one. But there are other ones where I liked where she took characters, you know, where, where uh-huh. she took characters to new levels. Um, with, I saw the Goucher exhibit on Monday. It was super. And I, the Pride and Prejudice American one said 1832. So that date I remember. Thank you. So it was 1813 and 1832 sitting next to each other, which was very cool. Excellent. Um, but the one com- the question I had was, you were talking about the future and where things are going. I've really gotten into the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Mm. Video blog. Mm-hmm. I guess now for almost a year. Right. And right. each episode is basically its current day Lizzie Bennett telling you about her life. And you get to meet her sisters and you get to meet Bing Lee and William Darcy comes in and mm-hmm. her, their, their friend Fitzwilliam. And you get to see them and all these different things. And she's a graduate student. And this is her senior thesis for graduate school. And so I thought it was really interesting. I saw it a couple of times, but I really got into it. And I guess they're still making it. Yeah, it's, it's in progress. It's on YouTube, by the way, the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. And the number of views is astonishing. It's hundreds of thousands of people are watching this. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not a film that has commercial backing. It's, it's a YouTube project. So, yeah, my students love the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, too. They're, they're cool. Yeah. Okay, so there are three Emmas. Um, there's Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow. There's Emma with Kate Beckinsale, and there's Emma with Ramala Garai. Gwyneth Paltrow. Interesting, you know, an American actress assuming a British accent and 
and playing this quintessentially English role. I, st I still say I have to put the three Emmas in a blender. Not the three actresses, but the three, the three versions. I don't, I don't have a, a passionate favorite, except for Clueless. Yeah. I was going to say possibly an interest in the history, the time she was writing the, mm. the War of 1812. Right. And an interest in time and place, comparing and contrasting with what was then versus what we know now and our general lack of knowledge mm. of the time mm. and place that she was writing in. Mm. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I know for myself as a latent history buff to go back and try to visualize without Calling for that miniseries, mm -hmm. what it was like. What are they really talking about? Mm -hmm. Why is Mrs. Bennett such a <laughs> itch about getting yeah. married? Yeah. Uh, because of, of, it's so foreign for the average American, the average 21st century mm -hmm. college. Some of the invented versions, sequels or alternative versions, put in a lot of historical information that Austin you know, leaves us more or less on the sidelines. Right, she didn't need to tell you lots about it. She assumed that you would know if you were her contemporary. So some of those versions can be wonderful sources. And I would especially mention um, a sequel to Pride and Prejudice written by um, Sandy Lerner, um, who's been a donor to Goucher and, and is an important collector. She published under the name Ava Farmer, and her book is called Second Impressions, and it is meticulously researched. Um, Sandy Lerner was the co-founder of Cisco Systems, and she is a, a lifelong Austin fan, and she spent, I think, 26 years um, on and off researching this sequel to Pride and Prejudice in the effort to make every single detail historically accurate, because she was very frustrated by the tendency of, of people who, who write in response to Austin's writings to just kind of pick and choose and, and take whatever they like, so second impressions. Margaret. Um, to that's a great question I'm a, I always snoop around when I read an, a version of an Austin novel I always snoop around in the author's notes and the acknowledgments and all the kind of extra material and a lot of times you see people saying really hedging and saying things like I saw the Colin Firth miniseries and I really loved it but of course I've also read Pride and Prejudice the novel but, I mean, you as a reader can, can guess, you know, where did the familiarity come from? Where is this author's heart? Is it with the screen version or is it with the original novel? Something that I've noticed in my teaching and my scholarly work is that younger scholars, kind of my age and younger, tend to be much more ecumenical about the adaptations than older scholars. People who grew up with the films existing, you know, might have been might have had their interest piqued by one of the film versions, but then did go and read and kind of go back and forth easily and don't have that need that I often see in my scholarly colleagues to kind of defend Austin against the rabble, you know, misusing her. So I, I'm very hopeful that literary scholarship will continue, at least partly in the direction of, you know, a, a more inclusive or, or understanding approach. Yeah. Is the academic world, is it a, is it a, a gender tilt on this uh, defending or standing there? That's really interesting. Um, one of my favorite books that I use when 
that I talk about in my book is called Two Guys Read Jane Austen, which is a, a book written as the exchange of letters between two men who have been friends for decades and who are in their 60s, and they give themselves the project of rereading several Austen novels, and they write each other letters back and forth while they're reading. So they relate the novels to their lives, and they say, you know, gosh, Jane Austen's depictions of sisters really help me understand my wife and her sister, and, and they're really neat. And it's, it's clear that Austen's writing has interest for men, American men, um, Americans. Americans. One of them might be my favorite quotation of all. One of them says, Jane Austen would have made a great football coach. Everything in her novels is all X's and O's. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you, can, you can approach Austen from so many different perspectives. Um, yeah. Did, yeah, did Jane Austen have any suitors? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, the film Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway in it blows up and makes central a romance that Jane Austen had in her early 20s with an Irishman named Tom Lefroy. So in the film, the two of them elope, you know, run off together, but then decide not to. Um, But that, as far as we know, did not actually happen. We have Austen's letters that she wrote about dancing with Tom Lefroy, but it's hard to tell whether, you know, she was really serious about him or not. She definitely had a proposal of marriage from the brother of one of, of some of her friends, a man named Harris Big Wither. And he was several years younger than she was. He was a landowner. If she had married him, she would have been financially secure for life. And she would have had her good friends as her sisters-in-law. And she accepted him one night, and then she slept on the decision and turned him down the next day. And we don't, we don't know why. So there's, there's some place that imaginations have worked. And people depicting Austen's life have imagined, well, you know, did she realize she really wanted to be an author? Did she realize that if she married him, she would have had babies and she wouldn't have had time to write? But we, we really don't know. And we don't know a whole lot about him, except that he seems to have been like, not quite ordinary in some way. He had a stutter, is that right? I mean, he, he seems to have been like, not the best person marriage prospect possibly you know in addition to no reason to think that they were in love with each other in, in particular yeah well, I was just wondering um, did the romance writers of America jump on the bandwagon or did they were they there the catalyst for this how did they respond to this whole Jane Austen um, upswing in the 90s romance writers of America um, so historians of the romance novel including Pamela Regis who's written one of the influential books um they single out Pride and Prejudice as the first archetype of what has become the modern romance novel. Um, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte is another important historical precursor of romance novels. Um, They've been all over it, I would say. Um, Certainly the romance I mentioned in which Jane Austen has a love affair with Fitzwilliam Darcy, there's also time travel in that one. I mean, that's, that's a conventional romance. There's a book of paranormal romances by romance authors, including Mary Belogue, and I can't remember who else, called Bespelling Jane Austen. Um, and there, there are various anthologies in which romance writers like take a stab at updating various Austen novels. And many romance writers will say, you know, they, they love Jane Austen's novels. They love Georgette Hare, um, a prolific author of very well-researched 
Regency era, era romances. I mean, Georgette Hare knew Jane Austen, so if you know Georgette Hare, then you're you know one step away from from Austen. And one of my first publications actually was an an essay about chick lit, when chick lit was a new phenomenon instead of you know a, an old phenomenon. And my essay is about women writers of chick lit and how they look back to um, canonical women writers such as Austen, Edith Wharton and others, because there was a lot of effort in the early days of Chiclet to say, well, this is women's writing, and it's just as important and good as Jane Austen. Jane Austen wrote the Chiclet of her day, said some, um, which I would differ from. <laughs> but I do think it, it's important to remember that Austen was not writing in order to be taught in universities. She was not writing to be highbrow. She was writing to entertain and to interest educated, witty, witty readers like herself. And you know, sometimes people say, well, what would Jane Austen think of her popularity today? Which is not a question that I usually like to think about too much. But, I mean, would she approve of the zombies? Who knows? Would she wish she had the royalties, you know, from all of these? Absolutely. Why not? Yeah. Do you, I know you said you're teaching classes on this. Do they ever do continuing ed or anything on I would love to. I have a very long wish list of programs that I hope Goucher can develop over time. Um, and I would, I would love to have an informal book discussion group about Austin that could meet at Goucher. I would love to branch out from the undergraduate credit-bearing courses. So that's, that's definitely on my radar. Thank you. I will, I will be happy to report that there's interest. Well, what I was saying is that some people would say, some scholars would say, if you had to say, who is the single greatest English novelist? Some would say Austin. Novelist, right, right, right. Yeah, that keeps Shakespeare and Milton and Chaucer and, you know, all those, all those men are safe. Um, but it's, you know, what, what's really the value of saying who is the single greatest? I don't know. I mean, there, are, there are lots of, of wonderful writers. But Austin is neat because, I mean, to state the extremely obvious, she's a woman. So, and, and she didn't have advantages, you know, in her own day. She didn't have a university education. No, no woman could. She wasn't famous. She didn't have famous patrons, well, I guess aside from the Prince of Wales who asked to have Emma dedicated to him, but she hated the Prince of Wales. So she, she wrote, as far as we know, she wrote because she wanted to, and she wrote the kinds of books that she wanted to read, and it's our good fortune that those are still very readable today. I mean, you're, you're right, absolutely right, that her novels are, are tough to get into for contemporary readers in many ways, but her humor is still very present. Her characters are still very recognizable. There's a lot that makes her novels appealing in a way that many of her contemporaries' works just do not appeal to us in the same way anymore. Yeah. Some of the books that she's read, she talks about that they're reading. Yeah. I tried to go and pick up some. Oh, oh. awful. So it's amazing that this stuff can, can translate. 200 years later, and it's readable, and it's, it, it relates. I mean, the ability to be able to take and make clueless out of this is mm-hmm. amazing that these stories are the same stories when mm-hmm. the situations are different, but some mm-hmm. of the other things that were written just didn't last because they didn't have that, it's human nature. 
It's absolutely true. And that, when people compare Austen to Shakespeare, that's the kind of grounds that they use, that Shakespeare created characters who are still fully recognizable, and so did Austen. And Austen writes about ordinary people in ordinary situations, you know, the, the tiny events of social lives, the difficulties of families and, and relationships, and you know, who at any time in any place in the world can't find something to relate to in, in that. Austin is still very relevant when you're reading it in your college-age daughters are reading it and saying, that character reminds me of Uncle Louie. <laughs> I hear that I hear this from my students all the time. You know, I say, "I hope your mother isn't like Mrs. Bennett." You know, everybody can can peg their family members and their their friends to to somebody. I've I've I can't remember if I mentioned this in, in my book or not, but um, an Austin fan once told me she rereads Pride and Prejudice for courage when she's dealing with her boss because her boss reminds her of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And Pride and Prejudice. So, you know, she reads reads those scenes in which Elizabeth Bennet stands up to Lady Catherine, and then she has the courage to stand up to her boss. And I, I love examples like that. And people are using these books for personal purposes, like to get through life. Use Austin to get through life. Yeah. That's your next. Uh... Use Austin to get through life. That's my next book. <laughs> There's there are tons of self help and advice books. You know, dating advice derived from Austin. Life advice. I, I write about those in one of my chapters. Yeah. Those are also books that are life advice. As you read them when you're 12 or you know, early teens, you read them in college, you read them if you have children, and you grow up with them, and as you read them over and over, you see things and the characters, and that's another reason why they just they keep revealing things to you about yourself. And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're wonderful to come back to at, at different ages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed this conversation.